Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Imagine, if you will, a plunger. Now imagine that plunger flying through the air, landing perfectly on a Starbucks sign. And a million people are watching you do this on TikTok. You know, I can't believe plungers, (laughs) of all things, have changed my life. (laughs) Meet the guy who's famous for his plunger precision and hear the story of a young woman who threw out the first pitch at every Major League Baseball stadium with her robotic hand. Then what it felt like to shoot a basketball for 24 hours straight to raise money for cancer research. If I was gonna die on the floor, I was gonna die on the floor. Like it, like that's how I knew this was gonna be so successful leading up to it because I'm either going to win this thing or I'm going to die. Plus, what's it take to be a Harlem Globetrotter? It wasn't about just being a good basketball player that will make you a Harlem Globetrotter. You also had to be a good person. I'm Kyone Wolf, Trick Shots. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and I have two plungers in my house that I've not looked at in the same way since putting this show together. It's a show about trick shots. Sort of. There's this guy who's famous for throwing plungers and having them stick to retail store signs. And you're going to meet a Harlem Globetrotter who made a slam dunk from 13,000 feet. But there's also trick shots in a different sense like the young woman who threw out the first pitch at all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums with her robotic hand. And there's a guy who talks with me about what it was like to free throw a basketball for 24 hours straight, all in the name of cancer research. But let's get right to the guy who has a million people following him and his plunger arsenal on TikTok, Chris Ivan. The short version of the story was that Chris was trying to crack that TikTok code to go viral and... He'd seen people throwing plungers at things before, and he thought, well, let me see if I can get one to stick to a Target logo. Because Target makes sense, right? Target, yeah, that's a given. It's a Target. <laughs> and so as for that, I ended up posting the video, and the video just blew up. It got millions and millions of views. And then Target was the one that commented, and Target asked me to do it again. So then everybody started commenting their ideas. Is there a particular kind of plunger that is your go-to plunger brand? <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> so it's it's really just the most generic. The cheapest one, the company that I think makes it is called Cobra or, or something like that. And uh, I just buy them from a hardware store and it's just the cheapest one with the red that's like, it's not very strong because then it's like, then I don't have to throw it hard, right? Because I, I mean, it's, it's a sign. I don't want to break anything. It's very soft. So it just lands on it pretty easily. You don't need to put any power behind it at all. And then it sticks and it falls off after a few minutes or I take them down. Now, when you were getting acclimated to what it felt like to launch these plungers, was there like a sweet spot where you would hold it? Like if I wanted to learn how to do this. Yeah. I mean, I got a day job. I'm not going to <laughs> yeah. threaten your line of right. work, I promise. But is there a sweet spot that you would you would hold it at to make it most likely to fly where you want it to? There's a specific way that I put the plunger in my hand where just the wooden stick goes right to the very bottom of my palm and then I grip it. I don't I've tested this all out. I don't put my thumb on the stick because then it makes it rotate more. And if it rotates more when it hits the sign, it's more likely to, if it hits flat, then then the wooden stick keeps flying up and it unsticks. So I just hold it straight. And then in the middle of the throw, I you just let it slide out of your hand. When you throw it, do you know you're going to hit it? You know, like when you, like when you play basketball and you launch it for a free throw, free shot. I don't know much about basketball, but when you throw it and you you like you know it's going to make it. Do you have a similar feeling when you let go of that plunger? Yeah, there's there's definitely times where I can feel that I did it correctly and there's and then you know it, it takes a split second for it to come into my field of view and then I can see that it's spinning correctly and then I just know. 
There's also other times where it's like I mess it up right away and I just know that it's not going to hit it. What's a better feeling? That moment when it when it's released from your hand and you know it's going to hit or when it actually hits? You know what? I would definitely say when it actually hits. Although I do feel very cool <laughs> when I know it's a great one. <laughs> the moment, because there's also like this element of chance to it. Sometimes it'll like land. And it'll hit and it won't be and it won't actually stick, even though it was like a perfect toss, because that's just I know that's just how it happened to go. And so it's like, even though it was a perfect toss, it doesn't stick. And so there's just this intense moment of satisfaction the moment it sticks. (laughs) So what exactly do you say when you go to a place of business and ask to do this? You know, the the sales pitch is a work in progress (laughs) continuously. So I originally started and it's just never an easy conversation. I'm like, hey, so I do these plunger trick shots. <laughs> and I was wondering what, and then I tell them, I was like, well, what I do is I make these videos where I put a plunger up on a sign. I just throw it and it sticks. And then I take it down, you know, I give it a couple pictures and then I take it down. And then I say, I was just wondering if I could do that here. And then Usually it's just after that, it's what do you do again? <laughs> it's what, it's a toilet plunger. I'm like, yes, I know it's impossible to explain sometimes. And some people are like, now it's gotten to the point where some people are like, I've seen your videos go for it. Other people are like, hey, please explain to me or show me a video of what exactly you mean. Yeah. And so I, I after that, the conversation begins and, and we go from there. But now I just hit a million followers on TikTok which has been an absolute blessing. And so now it makes the sales pitch really even easier. If I walk in and say, hey, hear me out. <laughs> I have a million followers on TikTok. And I do these plunger trick shot videos. I was wondering if I could film one of those here. And now it's getting to the point where these businesses are even, you know, I just did Honda and the the employees that reached out to me and they were like, yeah, please come at this time and play. So it just, I just walk in, I'm like, hey, I'm here. Do you ever... Zoom your camera back psychologically and think, this is my life? Oh, all the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm probably every hour of every day. It is just insane. I, I mean, I was just doing hunting and, and, and I was like, you know, I can't believe plungers <laughs> of all things have changed my life. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. And all the employees, they say it too. Yeah, we're blown away. <laughs> um. What are some signs that you are itching to do? Oh my gosh. You know what? Nike for sure. Nike has not allowed me to do it yet. And thankfully I know a few people that know like very high up people in Nike. So like, hopefully I can make that one happen, but that one I was not able to do yet. I also was just at the last blockbuster. Like the last freestanding blockbuster yep the last freestanding blockbuster and i've been going back and forth with email oh and so trying to figure out a solution to that to see if hopefully i can do it also the las vegas side that one's high up there i'm emailing the city of las vegas at the moment how about anything in times square anything in times square Mm -hmm. i have not thought about it but i'm sure i i could that's an excellent spot to be Another idea would be uh, billboards. For example, there's a billboard with my face on it on 84 and 95, I believe. So like if you were to see a billboard for Audacious with Kion Wolf and the logo is this A, if you were going to throw a plunger at my billboard, would you aim for my face or would you aim for the logo? Uh, It depends on how big your face is in there. But considering a, a billboard is pretty big, I would most likely go for two plungers and on both of the eyes. <laughs> oh, nice. It is just, yeah, it's just, it's a funny thing. It's uh... This plunger work that you do is hilarious and absurd. And if you were to be hit by a bus or a giant plunger from out of space today, uh, please don't do that, you would be remembered as the plunger guy how does that make you feel 
<laughs> you know, it, it was funny at first. I was just having this conversation uh, on my drive back from Honda. And it's funny at first because we were talking about, about how plungers, like they used to be gross. <laughs> you know, nobody wanted anything to do with a plunger. And now it's because so and then I just went, we celebrated my friend's 25th birthday and I'm surrounded by plungers all the time. And we had a plunger on the on the kitchen table. And one of my friends was just pick, was picking up the plunger and playing with it for like an hour and a half. And I told and I was having this conversation. I was like, somehow, slowly through through time, plungers have become instead of this gross thing, kind of like a fun, cool thing. And the other day, my friend from Utah sent me a picture of a group of kids just walking around with, with a bunch of plungers. And so it's it's all of a sudden turned into this gross thing to now just like a toy for anybody to play with. And so at first, when somebody was like, oh, you're the plunger guy, I was like, oh, man, yeah, yeah, that's me. But now it's like, yeah, I'm the plunger guy. <laughs> This has taken on a life of its own for you. Uh, nowadays, you're doing uh, live stuff on YouTube. You've accepted challenges like a blindfolded and timed plunger shot at Kohl's. What's next for you? What's what's your dream besides uh, Nike? I have a couple of things on the agenda. First of all, is getting more stuff out there and be able to produce even longer videos where people have more of an opportunity to bond with my personality as a whole, kind of see also like what I stand for and like what I care about as a human and let some of that carry me over into other videos. In addition to that, now I'm going to be, my whole thing is that I want people to, you know, if you have a dream, even as crazy and ridiculous and as funny and absurd as it is, like you can chase it and you can live your best life. So I'm a, planning on moving to LA sometime this month or next month. And I'm going to be going just by myself. And I want people, and I want to kind of put a message on that, you know, like be willing to chase your dreams, even if it's scary, even if you're going to have to face loneliness, et cetera. And, and go for it. And in the process of that, I want to do a challenge of getting a whole bunch of influencers to come join me and have fun with me. And so that way I can make friends as well and, and do that whole thing. And then finally, by the end of the year, what I would really like to do is do a video in every state. <laughs> so that's, yeah, <laughs> that would be, be the big one. And that, you know, there's a lot I can play with that. And I've had so many people reach out to me asking to like come through a plunger with me or hang out inside of a video, et cetera. So I would love to, I guess, spread the joy and the love by inviting as many people as I can in as many States as I can by the end of the year. Well, I will be stretching uh, my biceps. <laughs> yeah, I will exactly. be, if, if, if there's some sort of training program I can download and, <laughs> and an app, I will. And so when you come to Connecticut, we'll meet up and you can toss plungers onto my face deal my billboard face sounds good chris ivan thank you so much for talking with me thank you so much for having me we'll have a link to chris's tiktok at ctpublic.org slash audacious when we get back what's it like throwing a basketball for 24 hours straight or tossing out the first pitch at all 30 major league baseball stadiums and you know we gotta have a Harlem Globetrotter in a show about trick shots, right? This was definitely my most difficult shot I ever made. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. 
Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers. So we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're celebrating the guts, the glory, and the stories of people who've taken their very best shots. Later, you'll find out what kind of person is the perfect fit to be a Harlem Globetrotter and why one of them set a slam dunk record involving an airplane and a basketball hoop 13,000 feet underneath him. But right now, I want you to meet 12-year-old Haley Dawson. She joined me with her mom, Young, to talk about how she threw out the first pitch at all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums with her robotic hand. Young starts us off talking about when Haley got her super cool hand. She got her first hand when she was four. And then um, we loved baseball. We went to the local university, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Their baseball team had opening night. And she had just gotten her hand. And I saw it was a little league team throw out the first pitch. And I thought to myself, I bet she could do something like that. So I contacted the team. Uh, a month later, she threw out the first pitch for the the college, for the, their team. And then um, within a few weeks, Haley asked about throwing out a first pitch for the Baltimore Orioles because my husband's from Maryland, so the Orioles are our family team. Nice. And when it comes to trying to get things like that done, you, you got to give them the opportunity to say no, so go for it. Yeah. You know, the thing is, I've always taught my kids, always ask because you never know who's going to say yes. And for the most part, when it's kids, most people say yes all the time, right? It's the adults they say no to. That's true. So Haley, when kids at your school would see your robotic hand, how would they react? I mean, some kids would be like, what is that? And then, <laughs> and then others would be like, that's cool, whatever. And then I'd just be like, yeah. I mean, it is pretty cool. <laughs> But some people were like, what is that? And if it was just like my hand, not the robotic hand, but just my hand, they'd be like, what happened? So it's almost like if you have the the robotic hand on, people are like, oh, whoa, what's that? And if you don't have it on, they're like, oh, whoa, what happened? So it's almost like you can't get away from your hand. Yeah? Yeah. It's pretty interesting because adults will stare. Kids will ask. But adults are kind of strange like that. They just kind of stare and, you know, they're afraid to ask, which we always encourage people to ask. Or if I see someone staring, I'll go, you want to know what happened? And I'll tell them. <laughs> yeah. It, now's probably a good time to hear about, um, is there a way to, to nutshell what pollen syndrome is? Okay. I think I can. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Um, go ahead. I'm missing one right pectoral muscle. And, um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm missing three fingers on one hand. So Poland syndrome is the missing of a pectoral muscle. Sometimes it affects uh, the blood supply to the growth of the hand. Now, some kids are born with web fingers. Some kids are born with missing fingers like Haley. And some kids are born with short fingers. So with her right her right arm is shorter than her left arm. And then she's missing the three middle fingers and she's got a small pinky and a small um, thumb. So there's no grasping with that hand. Haley, what is really cool about having a robotic hand and what is not really that much fun about having a robotic hand? What's not fun is that I get a lot of attention, which I don't tend to. Um, um, and then sometimes it'll break if I try to do stuff. <laughs> like what, um, Haley? What have you tried to do? Hold different things, but sometimes it could be too heavy or too big. And then, yeah, it just breaks. But something cool about it, well, I get to hold things because I never, I can never really hold things without it. And people think it's cool, so that's cool. How many do you have? 30-something. 40? 40? She has one for every major league team, so which there's 30 teams. Her most recent one is the a Raiders hand. 
she got this in December of last year. So um, she made an appearance at a Raiders game with that hand. So when it comes to the pitching for all 30 teams, I know you've gotten this question and I'm sorry to ask it for the thousandth freaking time, but which one was your favorite? Like the most meaningful one to you, the one that maybe flash in front of your eyes in the final moments in this life. What's that stadium? Probably the first Orioles one. Cause it's like my, fir- my first like big one. And I was like five. It was pretty terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, can you talk me through, I mean, I know every single one probably felt really different based on where you were, the part of the country it was, and and how it felt leading up to it, how nice they were, or how maybe not nice or gracious they were. A lot of things went into the moment that you stand on that mound, and you wind your hand up and throw it. But will you talk me through, like, what overall it would be going through your head as you would walk out to that pitcher's mound? What would you be thinking, feeling? I would always say I wasn't nervous at all, but I I, I kind of was. <laughs> but when I when I was out there, I was like, "That's a lot of people." But I mean, weren't they going crazy for you? Yeah, still loud. Did you feel like that was a lot of pressure? No, it's just a lot of people, <laughs> and I was like, "Whoa." The moment you would release the ball, would you know? I got it. I nailed it. Or would you know, ah, it's not going to go where I want. Like, is that the moment you would know? Yeah. Because for some of them, they were good. Some of them were like really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Now, to prepare for this interview with you, Haley, I pulled up a map of all 30 MLB stadiums. And you have seen a lot of the United States of America. What was it like for you to be doing all that traveling and getting all that attention and seeing like such differences in the ways that people move through this world? What what are are your reflections on that? Um, All the traveling was kind of tiring because it was like a ton of planes. And then I remember a few times we got out of the plane, there'd be like people waiting for me And I felt, I kind of feel bad now because I was so tired from the plane and I'd just be like, hi. (laughs) What kind of things did they want from you? Like, high fives. (laughs) So, Haley, on September 16th, 2018, you were at the Angel Stadium in Anaheim throwing your 30th and final pitch. How did it feel knowing that you were just about to complete your journey to 30? I was like half sad, half excited because I didn't have to travel anymore. But then I was also sad because like it was all really fun to do. So yeah. One of your robotic hands is in the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Uh, Can you tell me about that and how it feels to know that a part of you is in baseball history? I feel honored. I didn't know that was going to happen when I was younger. And it happened. (laughs) Well, Haley and Yang Dawson, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. There are some things about Mike Slonina that probably would be a feature in his life no matter what. Like when this guy sets his mind to something, he follows through. But when he was a teenager in 2011 and his mother Betsy received a potentially malignant brain tumor diagnosis, that made him double down on a big idea that blossomed into his life's mission that may have otherwise never come to fruition. Not long after his mom gave him the news, Mike set a world record by completing a 24-hour basketball shoot-a-thon, which raised money and awareness about brain cancer research. He made 73.2%, of his attempts, sinking 5,930 shots in total. Now, he's the founder and CEO of A Shot for Life, which raises money for cancer research. I asked him to take me back to 2011. The story goes that his mom sat him down and drew a small dot onto a piece of paper. Yes, so I go into my house and my mom sits me down on the couch. Um, Now, my mom is a very 
strong woman um and she has a strong personality as well and she's great she's the best i love more than anything in the world um but she has a strong personality and so she sits me down on the couch and she draws a dot on a piece of paper and her she starts to tear up she explained that she was switching insurance companies and that she'd been having headaches so just as a precaution she went to get some scans they found what they thought was a brain tumor at the time they thought it was brain cancer um, so I'm, you know, 17 years old. I'm in my rising senior summer of high school. You hear that and it doesn't compute right away. You're, you just got hit by a Mack truck of information. And so at that point I went to a basketball court, I shot for about five hours. That's always been my escape in my life from whatever I was going through in a variety of different ways. And, um, I really wanted to make a difference. I also happened to be pretty ruthlessly competitive and those two things coalesced into our first shot for life event. I set a world record, I shot for 24 hours straight, shot 73%. A local ESPN reporter covered our story, but then their national branch picked it up. And keep in mind, this is 2011, this is pre-Twitter being huge. So there's millions of readers, it's on the homepage, reaching out from all over the world saying, you know, their story with cancer, they lost a child to cancer, they lost a sibling to cancer. And at that point, as an impressionable 17 year old, I decided, okay, this is not gonna be a one-off thing that I do with my life, this is gonna be what I dedicate my life to. And the last 11 years or so have been in pursuit of curing cancer and getting as many athletes as possible and as many sports as possible involved with our organization. So I want to back up and go back to that 24-hour shoot-a-thon. Yeah. You were so relentless in following through with this idea that for 24 hours you would shoot and shoot what was the ultimate objective with the 24 hour shootathon? What did you want to do with that? I really felt like I had the entire cancer community in that Jersey and on my back and that I was carrying that. That's at least what was going on in my head during that time. Um, and that's really how I kept myself going as you know, you're so excited at the beginning, the adrenaline's going and then hour eight, you say, okay, I trained for this. You know, I'm, I'm ready for this. Once you get hour 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you really have to dig deep in that moment. And that's really what I thought about. I thought about, you know, not just that I was going to lose my mom, but that my mom, you know, raised me. And so she was going to, in some sense, lose me too. And what she was going through emotionally and just really drawing on those negative emotions and, and repurposing them for fuel is what was going on in my head throughout the 24 hours. I can't imagine doing anything for 24 hours, let alone, <laughs> let alone shooting hoops. Uh, how did you prepare for that event? So for about 11 months, um, I trained three times a day. So I would do a shooting workout in the morning. I would do a lifting or running workout at lunch during school. And then I would do a shooting workout again after school. And a big part of the training wasn't just on physically, it was on mentally getting myself prepared to do this. Um, part of the issue with training is that you can't obviously train 12 hours at a time, 14 hours at a time, because you'll be so hurt, you can't keep training. So we had to simulate my exhaustion. So for example, in the summer, I'd put on a whole sweatsuit, a trash bag, and I would shoot on a shooting machine with a couple thousand shots. But I needed to simulate the exhaustion so that when it was hour 14 and I'm dehydrated, I know what this feels like. It's not foreign to me. And I know how to navigate it. So when you did feel totally dehydrated and beat down and exhausted, how did you deal with it? And what was going through your mind? I was so singularly focused on the end of those 24 hours. I don't know that I really let myself have any moment of doubt at all. Um, and in that moment, like if I, this is going to sound really dramatic. It really is the honest truth though. If I was going to die on the floor, I was going to die on the floor. Like it, like that's how I knew this was going to be so successful leading up to it because I'm either going to win this thing or I'm going to die. Like those are going to be the only two ways out of this. And so in those moments, you're just thinking one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, keep going, keep going, keep going. And you're basically drawing on for me, I, I'm very much motivated um, by a lot of different things in my life. And in that moment, you're pulling everything, anything mean anyone ever said to you, any bad time, your dog barked at you and you didn't want them to, like, you are pulling on absolutely everything that you have to keep yourself moving. And it sounds in a way, not that you were expecting to die or get killed by this effort, that you knew with your whole self that you were going to accomplish this. And I wonder if having gone through that, all the things you've done since have been maybe informed by how you behaved during those 24 hours. I think definitely. I think it revealed a lot about the DNA of what a shot 
half life would become in those 24 hours that we're just going to persevere and push through no matter what gets thrown our way. COVID was certainly one of those things recently that we had to navigate through. We've grown like 400% since COVID hit. So all throughout the training, I had this vision of the scoreboard running down and the way the sun hit the scoreboard. And I, I just saw it. I saw it every day as if it was a memory that hadn't happened yet. And I saw it so clearly. And then it is, I swear to you, exactly what it looked like that day on April, 9, uh, April 10th at about noon. It was unbelievable. I mean, it made me believe in the law of attraction. Like it, it was really pretty unbelievable how exact that was. You just gave me shivers because <laughs> the law of attraction is something I've only very recently started working with. And it is, uh, it is freaky and pretty powerful. And it makes it you is. think like, what else have I either attracted that I didn't want? Or what else? Like, what have I missed out on? Because I could have been attracting it. It's wild. Um, why did you decide to do it for 24 hours of all the amount of hours? It hadn't been done before the way I've done it. So people have taken free throws, people have taken threes. But part of the challenge of this was that I couldn't let my body just settle into a rhythm. It's constantly adapting throughout the 24 hours. So I would take some free throws. I would take turnaround jump shots. I would take half court shots. I would take threes. I would take floaters. I would take step backs. Like I, you're, I'm doing such a variety of different shots. And that's what makes this different from anything else anyone's ever done. When that clock came down to zero, what were you feeling and thinking? I had so much respect for this mountain that I just climbed that it was almost like I was shaking hands with an opponent that I just beat in like the last round. And I remember I put the jersey over my eyes. I thanked God, you know, that that's a big part of my life. But I remember I put the jersey over my eyes and walking around, I'm obviously in tears at this point, take a bunch of pictures. And then we go, we walk off the floor and I just had my team in the, in the back, which was a bunch of classmates that were with me at the time that helped put together the fundraiser. And I just told everybody how much I loved them and how much I appreciated them and how they were the beginning of something. And I knew that then. And so right now, I mean, during this interview, we have a staff member sitting to my left and an intern sitting to my right. Um, we have nine people here right now all summer. We're doing a bunch of different sports. And I knew in that moment that that's what the groundwork had been laid for. We were building the foundation to build a skyscraper. And that skyscraper is currently well under construction. You mentioned your faith in God, and we also were talking about the law of attraction. And, you know, you go through all this thing, and it turns out that your mom didn't have cancer. What, what did she end up having? So what they actually don't know what it is. Um, the problem is that where it is in her brain cannot be biopsied safely. So they just have to watch it. But it has not grown in 11 years, which means it's not cancer. It would have. And so we, we, it could be a birthmark. It could be she could have had an injury or a really bad injury as a kid. And it, it's hard to tell what it is. But we are like so unbelievably small of a percentage of the people that get that news that it turns out this way. And the Shaffer Life exists for all the families that don't have just an incredible stroke of luck with this. So with your faith in God, and also you know that you, with the law of attraction, you are also accountable for the choices you make and the way you focus your thoughts. Uh, when you think about God and God's place in what you've experienced and what you continue to experience, how is God involved in it? You know how some people like to think, well, God's will or, you know, something like that. I don't know. It's hard to figure out how to ask this question, but do you know what I mean? So I guess what I would say is that as things were happening over the last 11 years, I couldn't understand the rhyme or reason to them. Um, but now knowing where we are and where we're about to be, looking back, I can perfectly see how all of those things were absolutely necessary to get us to this point, both the successes and the failures. And I think that for me, a strong faith has really helped be a balancing force at times where things were really difficult. I think God, you look, I'm Catholic, but I think God means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And, and I'm of the belief that no one is wrong there. I think God reaches out to all of us in different ways. I'm very lucky that I found my passion in life very young. I mean, I've loved basketball since I was three years old. And so um, my grandmother tells a story that in the crib, they gave me a bunch of little toy sports objects. And when they tried to take the basketball from me, I started crying. Now, I'm not 100% sure that's true, but that's, matter. that's a story that they tell. And so I'm very lucky in the sense that I feel like God has intervened in my life in different ways and pointed me in the right direction. And I think some people say that's nature pointing them. I think some people say that's Jesus pointing them. I think some people saying that it's a different type of God pointing them. I, I personally believe that is all the same thing. And I, I'm grateful every day for the life that I get to do. And I love the fact that we can impact people with the passion that I feel so strongly about. 
So what's next? What's your next big goal? So we are going 100 miles an hour. Um, I want to raise a million dollars annually. We're not quite there yet. We should be getting much closer by the end of the next, uh, at the end of 2023. Our goal now is not just to do basketball. We've sort of broke the seal on that with baseball and softball. We want all athletes making a difference at all levels for cancer research. The reality is that every single person wearing the Shot for Life logo is representing somebody that can't leave the hospital. And I love the community this has become. And I 100% believe that a shot for life is going to change the world. I think it already has changed people's worlds, but it's going to change the world on a more macro level. And I am not going to rest until it does. I believe you. Thank you. How's your mom doing? And what does she think about all this? So my mom is doing great. Um, really, really well. Uh, she is, what's funny is she actually fought the beginning of a shot for life very hard. And so now at the time I didn't understand it, but now at 29, I do get it more, which is that, look, she just got dealt this life altering diagnosis. Her only son wants to shoot a basketball for 24 hours as I'm going through this, is he nuts? And so she really fought it. I had to see nutritionists. I had to see a million doctors. I had to see all kinds of people had to give their approval. Now she's very happy about it. She's on our board of the shot for life. She's, you know, a big part of this community as well. All of our players know her, all of our staff knows her. And she's my best friend. I mean, she's, she's the best. And so, we're very fortunate for how this has all played out. Um, but at the beginning, she fought it. And so thank God I did not listen to my mom. <laughs> um, when you are old and gray in your rocking chair, looking back at your life, how do you hope people remember you? I kind of see myself being active in this until my dying day. I got to tell you, like when I'm not the CEO anymore in a very long time, I will be the chairman of the board. And when I'm not that, I'll still be on the board. Like I, I, this is my life's work. This is what I've dedicated my life to. And I will say just you know, off that question. So I actually had my own cancer scare last fall, ended up being totally fine, was not cancer, but I had to have surgery to have something removed. And I was told by my first doctor that like, you know, it might be cancer and I have had the symptoms for a long time. So it was not looking good for a couple of weeks. And um, I went through a brutal crisis just of, of, you know, life and death and all of those things and just facing my own mortality at, at a age where you don't really consider that very much. And in that moment, I was really proud of the choices that I made. And, you know, look, starting a nonprofit from the time you're 19, there's a lot of sacrifices that you make over the last decade to get us to this point. And there are, I can't lie, I mean, I'm a human. There have been times where I've said, you know, do you go to the private sector and, and take care of yourself rather than to do this. Um, ultimately, that was never a real temptation, but this thought certainly enters your mind at a low point. And when I thought my life was on the line, I was extremely proud that I did not do that. And I was extremely proud of the choices that I made. So I hope that when that day does come far in the future, that is the same thought process that I can look back on the choices I made and be really proud of what I did. And ultimately, for all of us, if we can look at ourselves in the mirror and be proud of ourselves, that's really all that matters. Well, Mike Slonina, thank you so much for all you do, and thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much, Connor. I appreciate it. By the way, the song you're hearing is All I Do Is Win by DJ Khaled, and it made repeated appearances during Mike's 24-hour shoot-a-thon back in 2011. And, you know, I don't know. It still feels appropriate for him now. We'll have links to Mike's work at ctpublic.org audacious. After the break... We're going to stay on the basketball court and find out what it was like for Harlem Globetrotter Hammer Harrison to pursue a slam dunk from 13,000 feet. It was just one of the most exhilarating and happiest feelings I've ever felt in my life when I made it. <laughs> I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast in absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. If you've never donated to this station before, that's okay. Public radio is available to everyone for free. But we do rely on listener support from those who are able to give. So join the community of supporters for Public Media Giving Days. And thanks. 
Give now at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, Audacious Trick Shots. And frankly, we saved this one for the end because there is no person, no organization, no business, no nothing that does trick shots better than the Harlem Globetrotters. I figured I'd get the theme song over with so you can have it running in your mental background as you hear the glorious voice of Hammer Harrison. He's been with the Harlem Globetrotters since 2009, and as a six-time Guinness World Record holder, he's used to smashing expectations. In 2018, he leapt 855 feet from the stratosphere sky jump in Vegas for the world's highest slam dunk. And then in 2019, he made another slam dunk from 13,000 feet. But let's back up for a minute. What's his first memory of the Harlem Globetrotters? I would say my earliest memory of the Harlem Globetrotters will have to be on an episode of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> you know, um, to me, they look like superheroes, seeing them on a cartoon, you know, fighting bad guys and villains and stuff like that. So my perception of the Harlem Globetrotters was like, look at these superheroes of my complexion on the screen. So I thought that was uh, an awesome thing to watch. And then to be a part of that team years later, is just, it's been an honor. Okay, so there are plenty of kids out there who saw the Harlem Globetrotters on Scooby-Doo and thought, this is awesome, but most of them don't think, that's going to be me someday. Yeah, no. No, it's like you almost look at them as like immortal. Like it's just this this feat that's not obtainable. And it just took me some time to realize, you know, if if there is something that, you know, you desire or that you want so bad, you know, go after it and, and chase it, you know, because anything is obtainable and anything is possible. Well, you talk about when you tried out for the Harlem Globetrotters, what that was like. And then when you found out that you were in. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, I didn't think I didn't think they was gonna pick me up. First of all, why not? I don't know. It's just you always. I always had self doubt. You know, things never went like extremely great in my life growing up. So it was like, all right, you know what? If y'all like me, y'all like me. You know, but um, you know, I was a Division One athlete. You know, um, I was very athletic, tall. I'm actually six foot nine. In case you're wondering, um, I know I look a lot smaller on Zoom, but um. <laughs> You know, so they invited me to this tryout. It was actually in Long Island and uh, it was just basketball. It was just, you know, one on one, like five on fives up and down the court and stuff like that. And and uh, yeah, uh, I stood out. You know, I just did me. I did what the hammer do, you know, so I'm, you know, playing. Uh, I'm an inside player. I've never been like a great three point, four point shooter or anything like that. So, you know, I, I come with a lot of post moves and, you know, high flying dunks and stuff. So I did me and got the chance to do an interview. And uh, that's when I realized it wasn't about just being a good basketball player that will make you a Harlem Globetrotter. You also had to be a good person, you know, and a great entertainer too. So um, with those qualities, that's what they saw in me. And, and here I am 13 years later. So you're a positive person with stuff you have to deal with, with hard days and hard hours and hard weeks and hard years, but you're you seem and I feel like you're a really positive person. And I wonder how much how much did your time with the Harlem Globetrotters accentuate that positivity in you, like mm -hmm. feed and water it? And how much of it was just like, oh, I already had all of this inside me and they just brought it out or or what? Well, I'll tell you this. Um, the Harlem Globetrotters taught me how to communicate. And, you know, traveling the world, being cultured, being around different walks of people, um, I learned to engage and capture, you know, the attention of an audience and deliver a message. Being with the Globetrotters, I was able to uh, visit schools for the youth and do anti-bullying programs, um, uh, go to schools and do character education programs and stuff. So there's just a, a bunch of things, you know, we are ambassadors of goodwill at the end of the day. And uh I contribute a lot of the person I am today to what the Globetrotters taught me. Ambassadors of goodwill with a basketball. 
Yeah, but I don't I don't wake up and throw glitter at my face every day. I do go through no, stuff. Not every day. Not every day. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I go through stuff. Um, I have a family, you know, that um I look out for and everything. And yeah, we go through stuff, you know. We just had, you know, some rough years and stuff. So um, but my goal is, you know, when I'm on this platform and I'm in front of this audience, is I take everybody away from what they're going on, what's going on at home and bring those families together. And that's what makes the Harlem Globetrotter so special. Now, when you're learning a new trick, you know, you've got people who came before you, they could do this in their sleep. But like, how does it work when someone's like, okay, this is new to you and I know how to do this. Let's figure it out. How does a trick get taught? Well, uh, that comes with creativity. I mean, that's what, you know, even for me, you know, I've always been a, a creative person. Now, of course, you got to get your inspiration. So I look at, you know, footage from old Globetrotters. You know, you got Curly Neal, you got, you know, the Metalogs Lemons, the Geese Goose Tatums and stuff like that, Geese Osby and stuff. So, you know, you, you take a little bit of them, you switch it up, and then you add your own flavor to it. So it's kind of the same trick sometimes, but then you add that little that little twist to it that, that brings out that ham of flavor and that's what makes it new to me <laughs> may i ask why the hammer because i nail every dunk oh <laughs> i don't know why i didn't intuit that yeah, yeah. No, okay thanks yeah yeah i nail every dunk that's what i do i nailed a couple trick shots as you might um realize too um I actually hold the guinness world record for the longest underhand shot you know, that's um, about almost the length of a basketball court, which is pretty difficult when you're shooting granny style with two hands. So um, I'm actually proud of that record. It hasn't been broken by anyone else besides myself. I broke my own record, you know, because I'm waiting for somebody that can actually break it. So I so I have some goals to break. <laughs> well, you also have made some uh, leaps from heights in 2018 you leapt from the stratosphere uh sky jump in vegas that was the world's highest slam dunk at the time uh you were 855 feet up and connected through a, a, a like a bungee cord and then as if that wasn't freaking awesome enough in 2019 you jumped out of a perfectly good airplane yeah it wasn't dangerous enough for me so you're so so tell me about 2019 and the 13,000 foot slam dunk you made it was a skydive dunk right so now let me remind you, I'm not trained to be able to jump out of a plane by myself. So I have to jump tandem, right? I.e. Uh, a guy has to be strapped to my back, right? And you're 6'9". Thank you. This is what I'm getting at. I'm 6'9". Either I had to find the tallest um, jumping instructor in the world or there was going to be some type of imbalance of how we go. But um, yeah, this was definitely my most difficult shot I ever made you know, by far, because there's so many variables that go into this shot. Jumping out the plane tandem with the guy with the parachute, you know, strapped to him. First, we got to get the parachute out. Then my instructor has to actually get me close enough to the rim without splatting me on the back of the backboard. So, <laughs> And then <laughs> old mother nature has to be so generous to us not to do any gust of wind when we're getting close and then the hammer gotta actually do what his name says and nail a dunk <laughs> so so with all those odds against me um i was brave enough to to jump out the plane hold on to the basketball with the joys of life <laughs> glide down without fear in my bones and actually make the dunk it was just one of the most exhilarating and happiest feelings i've ever felt in my life when i made it <laughs> Before we go, I would really love to hear your thoughts on Bill Russell, who died recently, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Great both on and off the court. I'd, I'd love to hear anything that you have to say about uh, Bill Russell. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so heartbreaking to see a legend like that um, pass. Um, he gave us so much, you know, as far as his championship and his legacy goes. So my heart definitely goes out to his family and those, you know, immediately impacted by his passing. And I wish, and my condolences to all of them, and I wish them the best. Uh, any advice for those aspiring Harlem Globetrotter uh, trainees or people who want, who want to become Harlem Globetrotters? Yeah, definitely, you know, 
work on basketball and stuff, but inspire to be a good person, you know, reach out and, you know, do things for your community. I mean, you know, joining the Globetrotters is amazing, but, you know, some people might not make it, you know, and I don't want people to feel discouraged or feel that they can't embody the spirit of a Harlem Globetrotters just because they don't wear the same jersey as me. You know, we're all Harlem Globetrotters at the end of the day. You know, we can all inspire to to change lives, to make people happy and to bring joy to families. So um, I just think being a Globetrotter is more about the the person you are and uh, the way you impact people. So that would be my advice. Well, Hammer, actually, one last thing, one last thing. Since I found out that I would be able to talk with you today, I've had the Harlem Globetrotters theme song in my head, and it won't stop. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But I do you have any advice on how to see the theme song through to the end of and, and out of my psyche? Or should I just lean in and let my entire soul be like overcome by that theme song you gotta embrace it is is not is not it hasn't been out of my head either you know um my advice would be to grab a basketball (laughs) (laughs) and just go crazy well hammer harrison thank you so much for all you do and thank you for talking with me thank you for having me By the way, the name of this song is Sweet Georgia Brown, and it was written a little under 100 years ago by Maceo Pinkert and Ken Casey. The Harlem Globetrotters officially adopted it in 1952, and it'll be with us forever. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski, with help from our interns, Anya Grandalski and Mira Raju at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Special thanks this week to Meg Fitzgerald. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like what it felt like to find out at the age of 25 that you have an identical twin, And when you've got the Guinness World Record for largest female mouth in the world, what can you fit in it? And what a runner's high feels like when you're 105 years old. And other stories from audacious elders. You can hear them all wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for leaving that review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find our show. Send me your reactions, thoughts, musings, anything on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Wolf, Or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. Yes, I was that cat, all right.